Hey there, and welcome to episode number 157 of Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. My name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. And mine is Jamie Winger. And this is a very special episode of Marvel by the Month. Uh, Rob, when we uh, produce this, just drop in like a after school special. Uh, Sting right there. Thanks. Uh, yes, we are breaking from our one month at a time format to cover Amazing Spider Man number 96 through 98 as a single story. Um, reason for this is that these are the, uh, the first three issues of any Marvel comic to be published without the seal of the Comics Code Authority. <gasps> Scandalous. Uh, Risky. Um, and, uh, I mean, they're also pretty much the last ones for the next 30 years or so. So, mm-hmm. uh, enjoy them while you got them. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, uh, we'll talk about the story of what happens between the covers in just a little bit. Um, we're also going to talk about what I think is the much more interesting, uh, history of comic censorship. Uh, and to help us do that later in the podcast, uh, we're going to be joined by Dennis Kitchen, uh, the founder of Kitchen Sink Press and the comic book Legal Defense Fund, um, just for a peek behind the curtain, we have already recorded that interview, and it was great. I yeah. hope you enjoy it. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had. I wish we could have talked for many more hours. Yeah. That was how great it was. Yeah, yeah, it was like if college was cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he he, uh, he gave us an hour of his time on his wedding anniversary. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this is the man who's he's committed to the bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we are very very grateful to him. Um, on multiple levels. Yes, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah. So first, before we get into all that, um, let's back up and, and talk a little bit about the comics code, uh, which we have done before. Um, I think for the purposes of this episode, there's probably just three things you need to know. Um, the first is that, uh, it was formed in 1954 as a response to public pressure, uh, including Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency with the goal of reassuring parents that comics containing the Comics Code seal would not contain anything indecent, immoral, or excessively violent by 1954 standards. (laughs) (laughs) Of of which, of course, there was only one standard, right, for each of those things. Exactly. uh, Universally agreed upon Mm -hmm. standard for morality, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so this is the same code that is still in effect in 1971, like with only the most modest updates. Um, the original version of the code, this is the second thing you need to know. Um, the original version of the code was specifically written in a way to make the wildly successful comics published by EC comics, uh, including tales from the crypt, vault of horror, weird science, uh, unapprovable by the code and therefore, uh, put EC out of business, which it basically did. Mm. Um, the only thing that, that survived from EC, uh, was mad, uh, which stopped being a comic and started being a magazine to get away from the code. Um, and the third thing you need to know, um, is that, uh, the comics code authority was a self-censorship organization. Uh, it was created by representatives of the five largest comics publishers of the era, (laughs) Marvel, uh, national, which, you know, was known as DC, uh, Archie, Charlton and Harvey. Um, Uh, what's that scene in Zoolander? I I don't know if it's the actual, no, Anchorman. There's an Anchorman version where the, like all the newscasters come together to fight. Right. Like West Side Story. (laughs) They're each like themed appropriately. That's exactly what I'm picturing with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the fact that it was a, a self censorship organization, I think that part gets overlooked sometimes. I think we have this 
you know, looking back on the comics code, if you don't know a lot about it, you think it was like this draconian measure that yeah. was enacted by the federal government, you know, but that's not what it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, we had our, our friend Katie pride on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and she pointed out that it was really more of a marketing scheme than an editorial mandate. Um, like it was basically, this is a way to reassure our consumers that, you know, our books are not going to turn their children into psychopaths or sex maniacs. Right. Right. Yeah. You're, you're safe with us. Right. By our comics. Yeah. Yeah. It also gave so much power to, to Charlton and Harvey. Um, I mean, again, the, Mm -hmm. the Joe has talked about this, the incentives for, (laughs) uh, especially when we talk about the monster comics. Yeah. Um, the it is a money incentive putting uh taking out your competition by saying you can't use the word horror mm-hmm. which is one of the titles of ec's books yeah, yeah. or it, it's in the title and so they've just eliminated their competition and everyone else has to come and negotiate with them yeah to create their own bylaws which still gives them favor uh yeah yeah it would be like it would be like uh dc saying you can't have comics with captain in the title which they kind of did. Like, oh. I mean, it, uh, they sued Fawcett Comics when Fawcett, uh, Fawcett's Captain Marvel was incredibly popular in the 50s. Oh, right, right, right. And they you said, that, about that. they said, you're infringing on Superman. And they just kept them tied up in court uh, mm. and, you know, basically put the company out of business and then acquired Captain Marvel, <laughs> which then they couldn't call Captain Marvel because Marvel had swooped in and created Captain Marvel. Oh so, which we that. know was a great comic for Marvel. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They put the best people just, on that thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, so everyone who's participating in the code does so voluntarily. Um, and, and the individual creators might've chafed at some of these restrictions, but I mean, it was really publishers, you know, they 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 just cared about whether or not distributors would carry their books, um, because if you don't have distribution to the newsstands, you're not selling any comics. Um, it's not a freedom of speech issue. It's a space on the newsstand issue. Mm. Um, and having something like the Comics Code was a way to keep the heat off. Um, you know, it, it was one of those sort of, I don't know, like a a placebo to make everyone feel better. You know, it's like that that little square logo on the cover just carried a lot of weight yeah Yeah. and we've seen so many things like that in other industries yeah this was just i mean i believe even the motion picture association ratings were a voluntary group absolutely yeah Uh, again industry organization yeah it's like uh uh, jd power and associates you know the car the yeah. car thing sure. like, oh, J.D. and Howard they say it's the greatest, greatest thing since sliced bread they're, that's just them like yeah. they, they, they right. just like they put they on a mustache no and a fake hat you should definitely buy these it's three kids in a trench coat yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it, but there were some publishers that, that didn't need that independent validation because of you know, the reputation of their content so like Dell and Gold Key Comics didn't use the comics code because they were publishing Looney Tunes and Disney comics, which like everyone was like, oh, it's it's Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, you know? except that they're half nude. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, there's Elmer Fudd murdering apple. everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, you know, so <laughs> so basically, like, I mean, it, there's the 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 comics code. It's a fig leaf. It's an anti-competitive measure. It is, you know, it's all these things, but it still has this weight. Um 
you know, that where you, if you don't have that seal on your books, then distributors get squirrely about carrying them. Newsstands don't want to stock them because, you know, it, maybe parents groups or church groups are going to get upset. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, and, and it hasn't really uh, changed much since 1954 at this point. Um, we have seen it loosen up very slightly. Uh, I think literally just a couple months ago, um, they started allowing uh, monsters with literary legitimacy um, <laughs> and also uh, corrupt public officials who were the real monsters um, <laughs> to be shown in comic books. Um, they also uh, allowed for a little bit more sexiness, uh, as recent Black Widow stories uh, have made abundantly clear. Yeah, she's yeah. always changing. Yeah, she's just in a constant state of wardrobe. We swapping. never see Peter Parker changing. Like it's the <laughs> he's, he's in the alley or on right, the rooftop. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, but it, it's still very much a repressive force in mainstream comics. Um, it, it forces a very rigid type of morality. Um, and it goes without saying, like, sexuality, you know, um, and, you know, a, a hegemony, if mm. you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and comics that don't feature the code at this time are either magazines, uh, which are distributed to newsstands via an alternate distribution method. Um, so they can kind of circumvent that. That's what, like, Warren... Uh, publishing's uh you know uh creepy and eerie that's how they're getting around it um or their underground comics uh which are primarily sold in places like head shops counterculture bookstores places like that um and you know they don't care they're just you know they parents are not going in there buying those books for their kids and if they are they're making a terrible mistake <laughs> or, they're, or they're they awesome. need a new bong yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right <laughs> <laughs> okay so with all this backstory how did Spider-Man, of all people, wind up on the wrong side of the comics code? <laughs> um, well, as with so many things in the 1970s, it all starts with Richard Nixon. <laughs> um, He's like the the 1984 from the Back uh, Back to the Future, or is it 85 and Back to the Future? Like that's the year, like the pivot year that everything happens. <laughs> like Richard Nixon is the the nexus point. <laughs> yes, he is the nexus uh-huh. of all realities. Um, so in 1970, uh, the Nixon administration's Department of Health, Education, and Welfare asked Stan Lee to publish an anti-drug message in one of Marvel's top-selling titles. This is part of the uh, the developing war on drugs, um, which we're going to see a lot more which of. Which Elvis helped out, too. Yes, uh, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he wanted to bust the Beatles. Yeah, he, yeah. even though he I'm did sure. every kind of prescription drug yeah. that prescription wasn't... Prescription drugs? Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> arguably not all to be used at once in a ham and banana and peanut butter sandwich, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, wow, a little judgy there. (laughs) Personal life choices. (laughs) I want that sandwich, except I don't want the ham. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Just Percocet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Percocet. (laughs) Sub ham with Percocet. (laughs) Okay, so so uh, Stan, he's like, okay, well, I'm gonna put, uh, I'm gonna do the anti-drug story in Amazing Spider-Man because it's Marvel's best-selling book at that point. Um, so issues 96 to 98 wound up being the very first story arc in mainstream comics to portray and condemn the abuse of drugs. Um, and uh, Stan also said that he wrote the story to focus on the entertainment value uh, with the anti-drug message inserted as subtly as possible. <laughs> um, he, he felt that kids didn't like to be lectured to. Uh, we'll, we'll see how successful uh, we think he was uh, as, as far as walking that line. Um and so, you know, however, well, the, the story did have a clear anti-drug message. I mean, when we get talking about this, there's no way you could confuse this with 
encouraging uh, kids to try drugs. Yes, no, right, definitely right. not. I mean, just some drugs, like Percocet. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this Brought podcast encourages brought, kids to try yeah. drugs. Brought to you by Percocet. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so even though it, it, it's a full-on anti-drug message, the Comics Code Authority refused to issue the seal of approval. See that right there? That's the thing. Yeah. Like, like if it if it was worth its salt, like you make an exception for the thing that's teaching the same message that you're trying to spread around, right? Right. Like, right. Well, and there's there's some wrinkles and complications here too. So, uh, so first of all, the code doesn't even specifically forbid the portrayal of drug use. Like, there's nothing in the code that says that. But there is a clause uh, that is kind of a catch-all clause. Um, it says all elements or techniques not specifically mentioned herein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the code are considered violations of good taste or decency. So that is basically the justification for refusing approval here. Hmm. Um, and the CCA had approved at least one previous story involving drugs, uh, which was the first appearance of dead man um, in DC's uh, strange adventures. Number two Oh five in which uh, dead man is clearly shown fighting opium smugglers. Um, but uh, here's where it gets interesting. So uh, the comics code administrator, Leonard Darwin was ill. You know, like <laughs> that's just in quotes uh, in the Wikipedia <laughs> article. So I don't know what that means. Exactly. It's <laughs> very suspicious. Yeah. Tell them I'm ill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so he was ill at the time of the Spider-Man story and the acting administrator, uh, John, L. Goldwater, who was the publisher of Archie Comics, refused to grant code approval because of the depiction of narcotics being used, regardless of the context. Huh. The, the, the way he split the hair was to say that the dead man story was just showing a business transaction, but this is actually showing use of drugs. So the fact that it was uh, a rival publisher who withheld approval is interesting. Oh, yeah. Wow. This sounds more like, uh, you know the the mystery the detective mystery that is obvious um <laughs> yeah that, yeah yeah right <laughs> the scooby-doo has been solved yeah yeah so and you know marvel was gaining market share uh their restrictions on how many books they could distribute was totally gone because they had a new distributor by this point so they were getting more and more of the newsstand space um and uh you know one of the other five families was not happy about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. It is some mob. The, the, the tone is just so mobby. <clears throat> Very much so. Or, uh, or magia. Yes. Magia. Yes. Magia. 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 Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, so Stan was pretty confident that the fact that this was a, a request from the federal government, um, that he could, you know, he could get by with this. Um, and, and he got Martin Goodman's approval to run with it. Um, so he ran the story uh, without the comics code on any of these three issues. Um, and uh, he said in a, a 1998 interview, I could understand them. They were like lawyers, people who take things literally and technically. The code mentioned that you mustn't mention drugs. And according to their rules, they were right. So I didn't even get mad at them. I said, screw it. And I just took this code seal off for those three issues. Then we went back to the code again. I never thought about the code when I was writing a story because I basically never wanted to do anything that was to my mind too violent or too sexy. I was aware that young people were reading these books and had there not been a code, I don't think that I would have done the stories any differently. Do hmm. you think that's true? I, you that's know, true for Stanley. Yeah. yeah it's like, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. I mean, you know, it's, uh, where is truth? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. There's so many layers of artifice. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I think part of like Stan was not a guy who I don't know. There, there was there was sort of a like a code of silence among, you know, some of these guys. Uh he was not I don't know. He he was not a guy who who talked a lot about like rival publishers or yeah. uh, it was not his thing. He just kind of he was you know, very positive and, and very pro Marvel and just kind of just let everything else kind of. That's why, you know, even the the rare mention of the distinguished compu what the distinguished <laughs> competition uh-huh. uh, that that was how they took a jab, like really lightly. Like yeah. you don't. Yeah. Right. You never talk out of school. You never, um, you know put anybody else down well it's the, the magia code of respect True. Right, right actually this is all sounding more and more like the magia <laughs> yeah, the more yeah. we talk about it but uh <laughs> one person who did not reciprocate that was mm-hmm. carmine infantino who was basically the stanley of dc comics at that time um and uh he criticized uh stan and marvel for defying the code and he stated that dc will not do any drug stories unless the code is changed um and as a result of the publicity surrounding the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare's uh, sanctioning of the storyline, the CCA did wind up revising the code almost immediately, um, and, and they allowed it to permit the depiction of narcotics or drug addiction if it was presented as a vicious habit. There you go. Yeah. That's so reasonable. So they changed that. Um, but, I mean, Carmine was absolutely full of crap. Like, because <laughs> one month after Amazing Spider-Man 98 hit the stands, Green Lantern Green Arrow number 85 comes out. And that stars, a, it starts a story arc involving Green Arrow's teen sidekick Speedy as a heroin addict. <laughs> and Oh, man, that just kind of almost writes itself, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Except, is heroin yeah. Speedy? No, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah, Methamphetamines yeah. would have been better. You should have called but, him Dopey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and on the cover, it says DC attacks youth's greatest problem, drugs. And there is absolutely no way that Infantino waited to begin production until after the CCA revised the code, because it was a matter of weeks between the revision and the publication of that issue. Mm. And that's just way too short of a timeline. Um, so clearly Carmine was just throwing mud at a competitor who had beaten him to the punch on a uh, socially relevant storyline. That probably got... A fair amount of press for the time. Absolutely. So did, yeah. again, and increased sales. Yeah. So he's absolutely. like, well, that works. Just like every other thing that happens between DC and right. Marvel. Yep. That they're doing something that works. Steal that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without fully stealing it right. and do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it it almost feels like he's kind of you know trying to come up with an excuse why DC didn't do it first. And what he comes up with is like. Okay, I know they're going to change the code, so I'm just going to say that DC is following the rules. Where mm. you know, yeah. we're respectable and trustworthy. But I'm sure not like every Marvel. publisher yeah. talked to the Comics Code Authority people. Well, they fairly, were the Comics. Yeah, code. that's yeah, what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, the the Magia already knew what the Magia was going to do. <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the backstory for the issues we're about to cover. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about drugs yeah. right here on Marvel by the Month. I mean, boo. <laughs> hey, folks, this is a very special episode. So we're going to take a week off from our hilarious 1970s advertisements to encourage you to support the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund at cbldf.org. 
Marvel by the Month is a CBLDF supporter. We encourage you to become one as well with whatever financial contribution you are comfortable making. Whether you're a comics reader, creator, or retailer, the CBLDF has been on the front lines defending our First Amendment rights for more than 30 years. When you get to the part of this episode where we talk to Dennis Kitchen, hopefully you'll have a very clear understanding of how important their work is. If you're listening to this, you probably love comics. There are people out there who don't love comics. They don't seem to love much of anything (laughs) except telling people what they can and can't do. And they love wasting the time and money of people and organizations who create comics and make them available to people who want to read them. Even when you have the law on your side, standing up for your First Amendment rights is expensive. So please go to cbldf.org and become part of the community of comics lovers who are standing up to defend our favorite medium. Now, once you have gone to cbldf.org and become a supporter, we would also appreciate your support as well. <laughs> uh, listeners who subscribe at patreon.com slash month are the ones who help us produce this show week after week. And for just four bucks a month, they get access to our bonus feed of extended and exclusive episodes. We have over 40 extended episodes on that feed, which feature deeper dives into more comics and longer conversations with some of our favorite guests. Uh, Rob, you want to shout some of them out? Sure. How about Mike Allred or Ibrahim Mustafa or Chelsea Kane? How about Matt Fraction or Tom Brevoort? Do you like podcasts? We've got Elliot Kalin and Jordan Morris and Clint McElroy on that feed. And the extended version of this episode features a more in-depth conversation with Dennis Kitchen, too. Your support helps us make the time to make this show, and we really appreciate it. So again, after you've supported the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund at cbldf.org, Head to patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and subscribe to get access to all of our past, present and future bonus content. Welcome back to Marvel by the month. Let's talk about Spider-Man. Well, the amazing Spider-Man number 96 through 98. I'll bring us through 96. Uh, This one's called. And now the Goblin. Yeah. Uh, it's written by Stan Lee, art by Gil Kane and John Romita. This issue has so much going on and so much character building and it is dense. Uh, Pete is back from London where he didn't get to see Gwen after all. He realized that she would figure out his identity quickly if Spider-Man turned up in London exactly as Peter did. Uh, So the first thing Peter does is heads to the Bugle to turn in photos of Spider-Man to Robbie Robertson. Um, As Robbie's looking at the photos, Pete realizes that Robbie might get suspicious too. (laughs) It's like, I love that it takes him until that moment. Yeah. Oh, wait, maybe other people other than just Gwen. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Which I think might be a nice touch of realism. Like he's so focused on his his girlfriend. Like that's right. all he can think about, mm-hmm. and not the obvious thing right in front of his face. Yeah. So really, anyone who sees the photo credit is going to get suspicious at this point, right? Right. right. As they always do throughout the history of you know <laughs> Spider Man. Um, the next day, Pete heads to school at ESU. He is wearing a very 70s tasseled vest. Um, I have to go off on the vest for a second. Yo, please do. A, this vest looks like a version of Dennis Hopper's jacket from the movie Easy Rider. So it's like uh. a sleeveless version of this same jacket. Huh. Um, Easy Rider came out a couple of years before this issue. Um, and then uh, he wears this for most of the the story um, did you do you feel like i feel like there's a lot of art choices in here that i you, i haven't been seeing lately like there's a lot of like heads uh with other heads behind them 
there's a lot of like noise and crowd. Like if this were a movie scene, this issue, there would be people walking in front of the camera constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like everyone's got a face and an expression. There's just like a lot of. This is Gil Caney. That's, yeah. that's what he does. Yeah. But yep. yeah. I don't um, know if, which issue it is, but there's one where there's like cups in the foreground. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. Just, like, there's a lot of like just props and, and it's like, it's yeah, so it, it's, it's that like multi-level, like the depth. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but some of the extreme close-ups are pretty funny. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we see up every single character's nose. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yes. Gil's always putting the camera down on the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Pete runs into Harry Osborne who invites him to go see Mary Jane in her first big role. She's starring in an unnamed off Broadway musical. Pete says he can't go. Harry says he'll lend him the money. Uh, This spins Pete and Harry into a conversation about Pete living with Harry for free. Harry claims that Pete's help as a tutor more than makes up for rent. Then Harry tells Peter that he is talking to his dad, Norman Osborne, and basically telling it, accepting the standing offer for Peter to work for Osborne. Yeah. Whether Pete agrees or not. What could go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And even though Pete knows the whole issue with the goblin and norman pete decides to go with it and accept the job uh then he spends a little time recapping the whole norman osborne green goblin drama norman uh the thing to remember is that norman forgets he is the goblin when he's mentally stable and norman osborne and he forgets that peter parker is spider-man oh it's so stressful yeah the the stress level in these comics is artfully done yes (laughs) um So Pete heads to Norman's office where he overhears a doctor reminding Osborne to, I quote, just stick to your business. Try not to think about crime, superheroes, or the reports about Spider-Man. They always (laughs) seem to affect your blood pressure. (laughs) It's a very specific condition. Yes. Um, And Norman tells Pete that he, of course, has the job um, part-time since he's a student and that Pete should just tell him what hours he can work. So it's pretty that's a pretty good interview. He's mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, you're, you're a, a science, you know, scholarship student. Come, come work for me. Yeah. I'm it, something of a scientist. myself. <laughs> yeah. It just, the whole dynamic reminds me of being a kid and meeting all my friends, like a young kid, like not, not high school kid. And like meeting all my friends, parents, and then being perfectly nice and, and pleasant and polite and me being terrified, just like, Adults are scary when you're a kid. And mm-hmm. like if some of these comics are for kids, I feel like they're hitting that note really well. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Norman represents the secret fear of everybody else's parents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Norman then also insists that Pete goes to MJ's <laughs> musical. Uh, Pete uh, tries to decline again, but Norman says he's treating the whole crowd. Oh, what a guy. Um. Then so Pete can't get out of it. And then he heads out on the street. So we've gone through pages and pages and just, it's sort of like family circus. It's just Peter Parker <laughs> bouncing around to different places and all this stuff happening, which is all the supporting cast. Yeah. 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 There's been no Spider-Man or green goblin action except in photos and flashbacks. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, so now on the street, he runs into aunt may and Mrs. Watson <laughs> who are heading to see hair, the musical. Oh. Um, and this is such a slice of late sixties, early seventies life mm-hmm. hair de- debuted off Broadway in 1967, but was revised and had its Broadway premiere in 1968. Oh. So, uh, you know, and it was still playing here and there because it was quite popular. Um, the, the discussion between Pete and aunt may is hilarious. Uh, Pete says to aunt may, 
but it might be a little too far out for you. I mean, look, it's not exactly rated G. And, <laughs> and he's right, because hair includes profanity, references to drug use, themes of protest and resistance, and full nudity. Yeah. So uh, it's a great musical, by the way. I love a lot of that, a lot of the songs from it. But Aunt May replies, honestly, Peter, you're so old fashioned. You really should be more hep. And Peter says, you mean hip. And May says, well, whatever you want to call it, Anna is teaching me to be a slinger. <laughs> and now, look, I, I, I don't want to be ageist here. Mm-hmm. All bodies are beautiful. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to yuck any yums. But the whole concept of Anna Watson teaching Aunt May to be a swinger, <laughs> I think that alone should have cost this book its comics right. code. Yeah, yeah, right I, there. I feel like since Stan had the comics code uh, label off of there, why not just yeah, throw yeah. swinging Aunt May into this? Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, so wrong they're going to see hair i cannot i saw it in, in the last 10 years or something yeah um uh again live i've seen it a few times and picturing aunt may <laughs> at this musical like the oldest I human we've ever come up with want to watch i want to just be on the wall or in a balcony and watch her face as many things happen that are in it you'd yeah. be making the face peter's making at the bottom of page eight yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. oh, now is, no. is it funnier if stan lee has seen hair <laughs> and he's writing this scene or is it funnier if stan hasn't seen hair and doesn't really know what it's about yeah and that, wrote this scene the latter for sure yeah yeah, and I feel like that's what it is. <laughs> I don't know that he would make the references if he knew. If he'd actually seen yeah. it. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's it's really edgy now. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, so while still on his way home. <laughs> Pete, Pete, no sense telling her the word is swinger. The big thing is she's having some fun for once. Yeah. Mrs. Watson is better for her than all the medicine in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Pete's pretty happy that Aunt May's like Aunt May's getting some. <laughs> yeah, she's <laughs> doing the swinging thing. But um, and then Pete switches to the costume and starts swinging himself. Uh, uh, there are birds behind did. him in every uh, in every every sky shot. There are these birds. Yeah, like, throughout Gil, the whole thing. Gil Kane, weird animals, but they're <laughs> they're far enough away that that we don't have to see their up close. They are just tortured, hideous, twisted, contorted, <laughs> yeah, monster by the month birds. Um, so, uh, Spidey uh, almost immediately encounters a guy who's tripping on drugs and about to throw himself off of a building to prove he can fly. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth mentioning that because. Uh, he's only one of three black characters with speaking parts mm-hmm. uh, in all three of these issues uh, that it's a black guy on the roof um, because that, that does play into how this is framed up in yeah. a little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, cops and onlookers are gathered on the street below, but no one uh, can get to him in time. Of course, Spidey does. He swings in and catches the falling man and then lands on a police car, but the guy is not breathing or not breathing well. Um, so a cop gives him mouth to mouth resuscitation, which is specifically called out by a mom and a kid that are looking on, uh, and revives him. And I feel like this is a, another thing where I was like, did we have to specifically call this out? But I think it was a pretty new thing and maybe even something else where Stan's like throwing this in. To, yeah. I, th- I thought that, <laughs> um, to help out the government agencies that are asking him to make this story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, it, and it's a redheaded, presumably Irish cop giving mouth to mouth resuscitation to a black guy. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it, it 
solves racism it, mm-hmm. it solves uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh homophobia it's like yeah. it's great it's a brilliant panel yeah it, uh <laughs> and then the uh the cops on the ground note that spider-man is still wanted but uh one says maybe so but i'd turn in my badge before i'd bust him after this so spidey got some goodwill out of it yep and again i don't know which page we're like halfway through this comic now page 13, 13. yeah so uh you can tell this is dense and it's going to take a bit more so uh spidey gets close to home he's thinking about the guy he just saved and we get a pretty big stan sermon um he says to himself out loud though i sure hope that poor guy will be all right but i wouldn't bet on it any drug strong enough to give you that kind of trip can damage your brain but bad but how do you want uh how do you warn the kids how, how do you, do you warn them? the kids yeah how do you reach them my life as Spider-Man is probably as dangerous as any, but I'd rather face a hundred supervillains and toss it away by getting hooked on drugs. Because like someone who hasn't tried drugs, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, which I, I was for quite a long time, and because um, that's one fight you can't win is being mm. hooked on drugs. So that didn't. I sound... wrote the story to focus on the entertainment value with the anti-drug message inserted as subtly as possible <laughs> because I felt the kids didn't like to be lectured to. <laughs> and then Pete continues uh, by thinking Robbie and a million other editors keep grinding out editorials against the drug scene. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe we've got to do more. If only Spider-Man could, which he is in this book. Mm. Uh, so so subtle. And then there's a panel where. Spider-Man turns, it's not even Peter Parker anymore. It's, it's Spider-Man. He looks right at the reader and says, was that good enough, President Nixon? <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, later, uh, Pete arrives at MJ's show finally. Um, he's greeted by Harry, Norman, and MJ out front. And we find out that Norman uh, owns the building where this off-off Broadway musical is happening. Um, MJ gives Pete a lot of attention. Yeah, Which, what is going on there? Like what? Yeah, there, she's I, she's just into Pete and just not hiding it. And then yeah, it's not, is, is she into Pete or is she just done with Harry? Yeah, and like is she trying to get him to break up with her? It yeah, just, it's so aggressive. It seems like she's trying to get them to fight or something. Yeah, like she's right. yeah. very yeah, she's very much uh, just coming on to Pete, saying all kinds of nice things, and Harry's like, "Hey, I, I'm, I'm right here, literally yeah. standing right here." Yeah, um, yeah. so. Uh, it makes Harry really jealous. They wait a little bit more for uh, Randy Robertson to show up, and uh, he lets everyone know about the guy that Spidey saved earlier. He also laments the drug scene and subtly remarks that uh, um, everyone thinks it's the black man's bag, but it ain't. We're the ones who hate it the most. It it hurts us more than anyone else because too many of us got no hope, so we're easy pickings for the pushers. Uh, I wrote the story to focus <laughs> on the <entertainment. laughs> very subtle, very uh, subtle. Well, and then uh, when he points out that it is everybody's problem and looks at Norman Osborn when he's doing it, they get into a little verbal spat about Norman not using his privileged position to help fight drugs. Uh, again, it just subtle, it's just yeah. subtle. Oh, yeah. um, with, with that Ghostbuster sign, like you don't think people are going to drive by and not see the sign, do you? <laughs> 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 so as they break up their spat mj makes a point of personally walking pete to his seat um the show does go great and everyone this is one of those seeds of character where everyone understands that mj is fantastic like it is not uh overstated 
uh, even if the musical she is in seems to be mad, as some yeah, people are yeah. saying. Um, it also features in the crowd in the center. There's this like of their group that there's like a blonde guy with a mustache. Yeah, he looks a little like Stan of the time. Yeah. With his, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so as everyone is milling about the lobby for intermission, well, it, it, there's there's a creepy bit like right after the show oh, where yeah. Harry's talking to his dad. He's like, how about it, dad? Oh, Isn't yeah. she all I said she was? And Norman replies, Harry, my boy, if I were 20 years younger, <laughs> I'd try to <laughs> ask your girlfriend. <laughs> like, yeah. what? Yeah. Not cool, dad. <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah. So this is just intermission, though. So, oh, right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, oh, oh. Uh, and Norman gets chills and breaks into a sweat. As he passes a door in the building, we um, Pete has a spidey sense tingle as well. So after the show, Peter confirms that Norman is looking at this very specific door uh, in a building that we now know Norman owns. Uh, and he decides he's coming back to find out what's in there. But first, they you know need to congratulate MJ. Harry says that uh, they're going out to celebrate, and MJ even asks why Peter isn't coming with them. <laughs> and, like, uh, yikes. Harry is n- not having a good time with this. Yeah. Um, now we see Norman starting to freak out as he is waiting, uh, you know, a couple blocks away to double back and find out what the door is all about. Because he doesn't know. He just has a very weird feeling about yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And he knows he has a key that will unlock it, but can't remember what it's all about. It's such a creepy vibe it is yeah. Yeah, the lighting on him too when he's like having these thoughts it's, it's like the street light like blue and beige and then like these bright contrasting yellows yeah it's it's Oranges. a very twilight zone kind of feeling yeah. um pete also climbs up to a rooftop changes into spidey duds and heads back just a little after norman he finds the dreaded door unlocked and open, and as he opens it, he finds the Green Goblin. Bum, bum, bum. And he refers to Spidey as Parker. Immediately, Goblin wraps up with, you'll never leave alive. The end. That's a pretty good cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. that was a great cliffhanger. Jamie, you want to uh, take us through to uh, Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man number 97? Sure. So this is called In the Grip of the Goblin. Uh, the the same it's the same team right uh, written by Stan Lee Art by Gil Kane Frank Giacoya and John Romita uh, yeah I, and, and Romita is credited as artist emeritus uh, which makes me think that I guess Gil did most of the penciling and, and Giacoya did most of the inking and Romita probably you know touched up faces or something like I that I think it looks different I think there's like a bit of a tone especially in the first half yeah for sure mm-hmm. the details a lot softer um so Spidey and the Green Goblin continue their fight from the last issue uh, in a lot of very, like, I think unintentionally claustropo- claustrophobic frames. Like, it's all really tight and close up, but not in a way that seems to serve the action very well. Um, and things, to me, felt a lot, like, less detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not a lot of backgrounds on page two, for example. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Uh, but as they're fighting, it's it's turning out that they're actually a pretty good matchup because the Goblin has all sorts of tricks and tools and smoke bombs and stuff pumpkin bombs he's got every flavor of pumpkin bombs. Yeah. <laughs> right right <laughs> there's mocha there's um yeah and so he's like kind of a batman style like he's just things coming out of utility belts and stuff and meanwhile like spidey can't beat him because he's also trying to not actually harm him that much he wants to knock him out but he's his friend's dad so there's like uh there's another layer of fight going on here where he's you know trying not to hurt him um the goblin continues to taunt him throughout this whole fight. He's kind of getting in his head. He keeps calling him Peter and saying that Peter has always been too afraid and too weak, which I thought that was like a nice little bit of psychological warfare. 
Um, the fight goes on for kind of a lot of pages, but then it wraps up with Spidey, I think, sort of accidentally faking his own death. And <laughs> like the goblin just like loses track of him and he's like, oh, I guess he's dead. <laughs> like, yeah, he just falls off. The yeah. yeah, right. Um, and so it's at this point where like the, the tension really starts to notch up because like now Norman's gone to do whatever goblin-y stuff. He thinks Peter's dead. And so the, there's a very real chance that he's going to out him um, as Spider-Man. So Peter goes home and uh, shirtlessly argues with a very sweaty headed, shaky and increasingly erratic Harry who like pointedly takes pills to knock himself out with and, like he, the pills knock him out with like alarming immediacy. It's like, <laughs> like they're in his esophagus and he's like, Whoop, yeah, yeah, just yeah. on the bed. Ketamine. Yeah. The scene <laughs> reads to me as like pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. And it just, it feels like, I don't know, the angles are like a little bit disturbing. Everything's like a little off kilter. The sweatiness, <laughs> a lot of yeah, sweatiness. I mean, these. Harry looks miserable. Yeah, right? Harry hasn't thing. looked worse uh, since the Fu Manchu. Oh, I was death. just going to yeah. say, you beat me to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the next day, Peter, in a display of like astounding and I think kind of frankly unrealistic amount of virtue, <laughs> to Harry, uh, like rejects MJ and he's like, Could would you just cut it out? Like this is nuts. Like Harry's my friend. Back off back off. Yeah. While that's going down, um the the, the villain mustache attached to that mystery blonde man from the last <laughs> issue. <laughs> it turns out that that villain mustache is attached to a man who's a drug dealing villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh Harry buys the guy's drugs but swears that he won't turn into an addict. Um, so and, you know he'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, the bottle looks like a rubber cement, like an old, tiny rubber cement bottle, yeah, too, yeah. which is kind of great. Yep. Like he's going to huff glue. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there's pills in it, but he's going to, like, <laughs> huff pills? I don't know. Oh, yeah, no good. How do drugs work, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I'm like, snort them or you smoke them? I'm not sure. <laughs> we, we wouldn't know. Uh, just pro tip. If you ever find yourself talking to someone uh, about how you won't get addicted to whatever you're about to do, probably should stop doing that (laughs) as soon as possible. Now, that's what Stan should have said. That's subtle. Yeah, Yeah. I gotcha. Uh, Peter goes over to Osborne's office to kind of like check in and see what's going on. But uh, Osborne's MIA. Um, While then we we get a presumably drug fueled with confidence, Harry, uh, who gets super cruelly dumped by MJ. Like yeah. it is not a graceful parting between them. It's not, but you, you get the sense that, I mean, so probably MJ could have done this sooner and kinder, but you get the feeling that she is absolutely fed up with Harry. Just yeah. Generally. And that like, there's a certain like clinginess or possessiveness that she's feeling from him. She, uh, like I mean, what finally the straw that breaks the camel's back, as far as this goes, Harry says to her, you're still my girl, right? And she says, wrong, man. You've always been good for a few laughs, Harry, but don't let it go to your head. I'm nobody's girl but my own. And that's the way I like it. See you around, Curly. And but I mean, the whole like the fact that MJ is allowed to be. Yeah. Like not Mm. someone's girlfriend. You know, I, I mean, she's like. No, I'm going to date around. I'm going to have fun. Like we've seen this in some of the romance comics that Marvel's publishing, but like this, like that, this is something to be admired uh, yeah. to some degree. It's you know? some agency 
in a female character yeah. in the superhero comics. I wish that it was presented. I wish that there had been more of a lead up to ha- like it where Harry was behaving in that way, like yeah. more notably. Yeah. Like I get, I think what they were going for is that like, this is the drug issue. So presumably Harry's been acting like a Looney tune for however long he's been popping pills. Yeah. And it's been sort of in the background where it's like MJ has been like kind of indifferent to him. Yeah. But like it, it, you're absolutely right. Like it hasn't been explicit or anything. And I mean, later on, like basically Peter explicitly blames MJ for Harry using drugs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Right. You know, so it's like, that's also not, not cool. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so like anyway. they almost did something great, but it just kind of fell apart on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the, the, every way that Harry is depicted in this comic though is great. Like he looks like he's on drugs. Yeah. He's walking too <laughs> close. He's talking too close. Mm-hmm. He's gesticulating. <laughs> um, yeah. He's on some kind of speed. Yeah. yeah, and he, I, I think he is not, I don't know, I, I, I'll, I'll hold, hold judgment on that. Um, anyway, so Harry then blames Peter for the breakup. He kicks Peter out of the apartment uh, and then pretty quickly takes everything he said right back before taking some more <laughs> helpful pills. <laughs> so then, meanwhile, Spidey uh, is searching for Osborne and... Again, we get the just a terrifying amount of birds in the background of so many panels. <laughs> it's just every sky, every blue sky. There's like a I don't know twenty little tiny birds. It's, Why are those birds following? It's even, <laughs> yeah. it's even like when Spidey is aiming down from the top of a roof, so the camera's behind him, and you see other rooftops. And then there are a bunch of birds just sort of filling in the blue sky area, but that wouldn't be the sky. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know what happened. I feel like Gil Kane might've been doing a little bit of too many pills or something. Um, so, uh, Oh, uh, just art wise, we get two, uh, Gil Kane, like single panel montages, which I, I always love the first ones of, uh, Spider-Man and all these different poses, uh, and the second one is various Harrys uh, surrounded by just all the pills. Too many yeah. Harrys. <laughs> too many Harrys. It looks like some kind of the the scary tunnel scene from Willy Wonka. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I love it. Like, I, the, you're talking about the panel on page 19, right? Yeah. The, the middle panel there. Yep. That is like the defining panel of this issue. Whenever this issue is referenced in anything like an article That's or something, this yeah. is the panel that they use. This, oh, thing, cool. this yeah. encapsulates the whole thing we're covering. This, <laughs> right, right, right. Yep encapsulates oh, oh, as a pill joke. Nice. Um brought to you by Percocet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are you going to to give us uh, his quotes as he's freaking out here? Oh, or I wasn't. May but, I? But yeah, please, by all means. He's he's saying, "I never felt this way before. It's like I'm drowning, falling, dying inside. Nothing seems real. Nothing hangs together. The pills. It must be the pills. They're driving me out of my mind." He says as he takes pills. <laughs> yeah. I wrote the story to focus on the entertainment value. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the drug message is yep. so subtle. Yeah. <laughs> so Peter returns to the apartment. He finds Harry passed out and just all the sweatiness. Uh, he's about to call 911, or I guess maybe the 1970s version of 911. Did they have 911 back then? No. no. I think they'd just be calling the hospital. Uh, yeah. There was four. Just call the operator. The operator will connect you to the hospital. It's just how it oh, worked. It wasn't yeah. six zero zero. We incremented up. Uh, he, so he's, he's about to call the emergency health services uh, when uh, the goblin swings by out of the window and calls him out for a fight. There you go. And that's our that's our cliffhanger, which is weird. Uh, I, I love both these issues, but they both end exactly the same. Yes. With the, the goblin about to mess Spidey's stuff up. 
Um, okay, well, that uh, brings us to Amazing Spidey uh, number 98, uh, which is called The Goblin's Last Gasp. It's written by Stan Lee. The art is by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. Um, so this issue picks up right where 97 left off. The goblin is zooming around outside of Peter and Harry's apartment window on his goblin jet ski thing. Um, uh, the goblin thinks Peter is too scared to come out and fight and he's half right. Uh, Peter is scared, but he's scared of what'll happen to Harry if he doesn't get medical attention right away. Uh, so the goblin gets tired of waiting. He crashes through the window to take the fight to Peter. Um, but he is repelled when Peter holds up the unconscious body of his son like a vampire would be driven back by a crucifix. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, Harry's pretty repellent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's so sweaty. Which he's so sweaty. I mean, this seems like the solution to the problem. If if he's so concerned about the Green Goblin, all he has to do is just like tie Harry to his back and bring him everywhere. <laughs> right, like, right. You know? Yeah, give him a pill every eight hours or whatever. Yeah, just keep fine. him sleepy. It's just honestly, master no blaster this yeah. situation. Yeah, like have him in a little backpack. <laughs> Uh, so the uh, the goblin, goblin has this internal struggle against remembering who Harry is, um, and then he flees the scene um, and, and vows that he'll be back. Uh, so then uh, Peter gets Harry to the hospital. Um, then he spends some time wandering the streets, moping over Gwen Stacy. Uh, and I got to say, like, uh, in this issue, uh, especially on this page, I think Gil Kane draws a beautiful Peter Parker. Like, yeah. uh, panel five on page four um, it is, like, straight off of a Smith's album cover. Like, mm-hmm. It's yeah. just, like, such a good-looking um, young man face. Yeah. 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 It's, like, James Dean-looking. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so it, it turns out, though, that Gwen in England is also moping over Peter. Uh, and she comes to the realization that with her father gone, nowhere feels like home if Peter isn't in the picture. It reminded me of, um, oh, this might be very obscure, an American tale, uh, the somewhere <laughs> the, out there. The, yes. The same stars. Yeah. yeah. Looking up at the same same sky. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and then on the bottom of page five, right on cue, uh, we get romance, comics, crying Gwen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know, just, ah, so good. So this young, tortured lovers. Um they, Gil Kane does it really well. Mm-hmm. Like um, he's done this somehow before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, back in New York, uh, Pete runs into Harry's dealer uh, who asks after Harry, uh, not because he's concerned about him, uh, but because he's got more pills for him. Um, Peter threatens the dealer um, and the dealer whistles for backup. Um, they lead Peter to a back alley and Peter beats the shit out of him. For <laughs> <you>. <laughs> like <laughs> trying his best to not spider strength somebody to death. Yeah, just like right, open handed right. smacks. You yeah. Know? It's like a real flash Thompson fight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can we just have a quick aside about, I think this is maybe, this is probably the first time it happens. Cause it's the first time that drugs have been used in a mainstream superhero story. But like this trope that quickly develops in comics of how basically it's totally cool for a hero to do absolutely anything to a drug dealer. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, which just was a through line all the way to about the year 2000. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like, I mean, and it gets to the point where it's like, you know, the Punisher is just mowing dudes down. It's like, it's okay. They sold drugs. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I was like, this is more complex. I have an (laughs) uncle who sold drugs and uh, he was a pretty nice guy. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I I don't buy, I don't buy drugs any longer, but when I did buy drugs, it's like, I was not buying them from people who lurked outside of playgrounds or things like that. It's like, it's like, it's like Chris Rock routine. Like no one ever sold you drugs. (laughs) (laughs) They sell themselves. So anyway, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know it, it, uh, this, I mean, this scene, I, I don't think it is presented in anything other than like completely morally am- 
unambiguous. Like yeah, Peter is absolutely bad. in the right, mm-hmm. and these guys are wrong. Even if Peter killed these guys, it would be okay. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Peter's like, I'm trying not to kill them, but you know. Yeah, they're drug dealers. But so. there, there very much is like a tone of like when this scene is over, it's a problem solved. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right, right. Um, which is I don't know. It's I'm not wild about that. But that's again looking at this through 2022 eyes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like drugs were the worst thing that you would encounter in a comic book at this time. Yes, and if and I, you wouldn't even really. Yeah. And <laughs> you when had I, to take the 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 code off to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and when I was 12 years old reading Marvel Comics in the 80s, like, I would have not seen anything wrong with this at all. But it is just sort of like, it's interesting that, like, this is how that idea gets kind of indoctrinated into your head. And and the fact that, like, it's even more complicated when you realize, like, literally the federal government was asking Marvel Comics to put this story in in one of their books, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's like literal propaganda, right? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's copaganda. It's copaganda. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so I, you know, I, in, you know, whatever, like drugs are bad, uh, but <laughs> generally, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to, they also make some distinctions about hard drugs and they say there's yeah. some things that oh, even yeah. Peter says, so just to be clear, like, Nobody's talking about weed. No. Ever. I feel like Stan might have had a, a few tokes on that at some point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, right. On his college campus tours. But but they they do mention like hard drugs and there's pills in there. It's like more specific about what they're condemning. The lead up to us reading and recording these, like I I heard that this these were like the drug issues. Mm-hmm. And I assumed weed i assumed like people maybe shooting up needles yeah. or yeah. snorting this right. was the last thing i was thinking about. <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's it yeah it, it's it's interesting um it feels and i don't I, I don't really know what the drug scene was like in the 70s but i i i assume like recreationally it was mostly i i don't know i guess like quaaludes were a thing though so like i don't know like yeah every, you had uppers downers you know i mean maybe pills heroin, were a bigger deal. cocaine yeah. you had all the all the basics tell us uh, about it rob <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted hash you'd get hash you know if you wanted it mixed i don't i'm just yeah. making stuff up <laughs> yeah but i i don't know when i when i think of like 70s drugs i think i think weed acid heroin and cocaine like the big yeah. four, the fantastic four right <laughs> just the the basics right yeah, the basics. yeah yeah i would not think prescription pills especially if you're trying to get a message to kids yeah that's the thing like it, this doesn't feel like i don't know the, the the pills thing makes it feel like it's a anti-drug issue written by someone who doesn't really have uh, a clear understanding or experience with drugs right yeah so i mean that's the only reason i bring it up um but you know i was never a pill guy so yeah me neither yep not brought to you by Percocet. <laughs> <laughs> no longer brought to you by Percocet. Uh, okay. Oh, and uh, at the bottom of page seven, uh, mm-hmm. when he tosses that guy, the bow, like he's kind of in a bow position. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. I thought that's a great, a great way to end the fight. Yeah. 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 Take a bow, mm-hmm. Peter. Uh, okay. So uh, meanwhile, uh, we, we go to the Daily Bugle and J. Jonah Jameson summons Joe Robertson into his office. Uh, and Jonah expresses some concern about what his fellow rich white businessman, Norman Osborne, is going to think about them running an article on his son going to the hospital because of a drug overdose. I have to say, 
I mean, that that's a legitimate concern. Like, why is the bugle reporting on this? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I don't know. It seems like medical privacy. Yeah, uh, you know. Probe. Also, like, I mean, what is the story other than rich guy's son <laughs> did too many drugs? <laughs> right, right. College kid does drugs. Full yeah. story on page four. Yeah. Uh, I also like when they're like they're across the desk on the middle panel on page nine and they're like both shouting at each other and it's like nobody likes drugs well nobody likes drugs more like, <laughs> this is a little like silly at every this day for these two yeah <laughs> it's like would you two just kiss and get it over with yeah but you know jonah's concerns are not around uh the ethics of this or you know anything like that he's afraid that norman's gonna pull his advertising if they run it right, uh, which right. robbie calls bs on um and i'm with robbie there uh but Jonah is he's uncharacteristically reasonable. Uh, he asks Robbie, you know, what angle he's going to take. And, and Robbie says basically the same thing that his son Randy said in the previous issue. I'm showing that drugs aren't just a ghetto hang up. They hit the rich. Same as the poor. It's everyone's problem. We've all got to face it. And Jonah is sold. He wants this in the next edition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there you go. Uh, so I guess the story it's it's not just college kid does drugs. It's white person does drugs. Right. So <laughs> right. That's why. That's makes, why it's news. That's why it's newsworthy. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, as the sun sets over the city, Peter Parker changes into his amazing spider duds and begins patrolling. Uh, he's searching for the Green Goblin, slightly concerned about a new weapon that the Goblin taunted him with uh, in their last run in. Uh, but he doesn't have time to worry about that because he finds the Goblin and it is on. Um, so after a bit of cat and mouse or goblin and spider, nice. uh, Gobby finally connects with a stun bomb and then he follows it up with another bomb, but a different kind. And <laughs> he's got a glue bomb too. I just oh, yeah. throw it in there. He's got so many bombs. He's got hallucinating bombs. He's got everything. Right. right. Yep. Yep. He's, he's a regular Hawkeye of pumpkin, pumpkin bombs. Um, and, and Spidey says, uh, it, it's some sort of mist covering my body, soaking through my costume, but why, for what purpose? It doesn't seem to be harming me. And it turns out the bomb removes Spidey's ability to stick to walls. Oh. And to make matters worse, he's also suddenly out of web fluid. <laughs> what an obnoxious coincidence that is. Uh, he's up a spider creek now. Um, so oh, doesn't the bottom of page 14 look like a Ramita? The the smoke looked particularly Ramita-y, mm. I thought. Yeah, I think he might have staged some of these too. Like, so yeah, sure. done the general layouts. So yeah, I, I noticed something an artist did and it looked like that artist. That's, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. But then we get uh, four, five panels with weird birds in the background. <laughs> yep. um, the birds are back. <laughs> There's a whole other version of this comic that's like from the bird's perspective. Like, <laughs> hey, what are those guys doing over There's there? There's a comic that's just for like pigeons of New York. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Uh, don't yep. know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, yes, anyway, Spidey ducks and dies around rooftops. He's frantically dodging the goblins' attacks. Uh, finally, he attacks the back of the goblin's head with his crotch and wraps his legs around his upper torso. So I have a new kink now. Uh, Spidey crotch steers the goblin to Harry's hospital window where he forces him to hover and stare at his unconscious son. I love that he presumably steers him across town with this whole crotch steering yeah, thing. Yeah. And it is... It, it doesn't seem like it would be easy, but he still has his spider strength. All yeah, on the hips. Proportional crotch of a spider, I guess. Right. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> That's how that works. It's this episode brought to you by crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so because we are on page 19 of this issue, uh, this triggers a mental breakdown in the goblin. Apparently, it also refills Spidey's web shooters because Yay. he's slinging again. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a continuity error, yeah, I believe. Yeah. Put it in the goofs. Um, Spidey immediately understands that the sight of Harry, so ill, shocked him back to normal again. 
and when he's normal, he remembers nothing about the goblin or Spidey's real identity. Then he takes Norman home, removes his goblin costume, and burns it, presumably in the same incinerator Captain America uses, <laughs> yeah. and puts him to bed. Yeah, oh, and he burned he burned uh, Hobie's costume, too, didn't he? The yeah. Prowler? Oh, yeah. his just, costume's just... <laughs> the fumes in the he city. Knows, he knows all the places to burn to, costumes. To burn yeah. <laughs> and I guess incinerators were more common I think they were in more buildings. Common. Yeah, yeah. yeah, less regulated. Yeah, you just yep. throw your plastic down the chute, and then <laughs> kaboom, it's so burned. Yeah, it was before the incinerator code kicked in. <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> so you could just burn anything in New York. Can, but can we get any more subtle um, sermoning from Stan before this thing wraps up? I mean, what what if there was just oh, one I, more? So my identity is safe once more. Says swinging Spider Man with his web that he didn't have before <laughs> um at least for a while now all that remains is to hope that poor harry will soon be all right and to hope that he's learned you can't solve your problems with pills mm. i mean it really depends on what problems you have <laughs> yeah. i mean there's some problems you can literally only solve yeah. with pills so. yeah what if you're not sweating enough for example <laughs> one of the pills will fix right away <laughs> uh yeah i also think like I mean, Spidey's making a hell of a gamble here that everything's going to be cool. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a big assumption. That Yeah, if as long as they shock Norman Osborn's yeah. brain, he will forget I'm Peter Parker yeah. forever. Yeah. He's like, well, he'll probably just think it's a bad dream and he wakes up. He'll probably be so busy caring for Harry that he won't have time to dwell on the past either. So, But, I mean, like... The alternative is that the Green Goblin wakes up especially furious at Spider-Man for breaking into his home, stripping him naked, and burning his clothes. (laughs) Yeah. I would also try to take every pumpkin bomb I could find and just confiscate that while I was there. Yeah. Yeah. He should be going through New York, like, removing every pumpkin image he can possibly find. Yeah. Yeah. But wait, we are not done yet. Oh, right, right. The coda. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Peter changes back to his civvies in an alleyway. Uh, He thinks he's losing his mind for a second because he imagines that he hears Gwen Stacy's voice. But it's no dream, no hoax, no imaginary story. Gwen Stacy has returned from England, and she and Peter are definitely going to live happily ever after for at least 22 more issues. (laughs) And that's where our story ends. Wow. It was really nice to see them, you know, get a smooch in on the last panel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just to lighten the mood after all that sweat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice to see one functional relationship in this book. seriously <laughs> i mean um, i think robbie and jonah have a fairly functional i, I mean, think it's yeah. dysfunctional but it, it works yeah yeah yep. i just feel bad for robbie because like everything that his son is into like whatever his son is uh outraged about is what he has to convince jonah of the next day <laughs> like, whatever the cause of yeah. the cause du jour but that's a good dad yeah yeah, yeah that's true it's a good dad backing his son up um, so yeah, it, it's funny. Like I was thinking about this as like, okay, so this is the anti-drug issue, but like when's Marvel going to get around to doing a pro-drug issue? <laughs> and I think it's, it's the last time the goblin appeared when remember like, uh, Spidey like beats him up on a roof and then just like hits him with a bunch of hallucinogens and causes like him to have a psychotic breakdown. Yeah. It's like Whoa, really? problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hallucinogens are very loosely used and have been throughout yes like it's it's odd that they're not considered a drug but like people have like ant-man has fought people who throw hallucinogens right right they're they're pretty common yeah yeah it's the gas it's it's always in a gas form it's like a sweet sweet gas that gets you wacky (laughs) right but (laughs) not when you want to that's why it's bad (laughs) right yeah right right. yeah if you wanted to then there would be uh, against the code yeah if you enjoy it right yeah 
It's always weapon and weaponized, weaponized to hallucinate. So that's maybe that's yeah. the message. Enjoying drugs is bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so there you go. Uh, that's that's the codeless uh, Spider-Man issues. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number ninety-six through ninety-eight. Uh, we hope you enjoyed going through those as much as we did. Um, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to have Dennis Kitchen join us uh, and talk to us a little bit about, oh, the history of comic book censorship and the comic book legal defense fund. We'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. All right, everybody, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We are honored to have a bona fide comics legend joining us this week. Uh, as the founder of Kitchen Sink Press, he published some of the most important independent and underground comics of the last 50 years, including Bizarre Sex, Gay Comics, Omaha the Cat Dancer, Will Eisner's Quarterly, The Crow, and From Hell. He's also been a lifelong defender of the First Amendment rights of comics retailers, creators, and readers, uh, and is the founder of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Dennis Kitchen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on Marvel by the Month. Happy to, Brian. The premise of this show is that we talk about each month of Marvel Comics in chronological order. So we're up to early 1971 right now in our timeline. Um, and that's right about the time that, that you and, and Kitchen Sink Comics were getting up to speed. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like uh, what led you to become a publisher of underground comics um, and syndicate alternative comics uh, through the Krupp's Comic Syndicate? Yeah, it was a big crossroads for me. I mean, I always wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, even with the discouragement of parents, teachers, counselors, etc. I just <laughs> thought, no, I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> if I fail, then I'll do something respectable. And um, so timing is everything, you know. So in 1968, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And I had been doing strips for the uh, weekly student newspaper. I had co-founded the first humor magazine at UWM called Snide. And uh, the second issue was going to be an all comics issue. So that was going to be my testing ground. But the editor um, ran off with the uh, treasury, oh. <laughs> and so there was no funds to publish the second issue. So I was angry about that, graduated, decided, what the hell, I will take all the money I have in the world, and I will print it myself, only it won't be snide, it'll be something else. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with the title Mom's Homemade Comics, because then it could have the subtitle straight from the kitchen to you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, so it had a lot of puns, even worse than that. And But it was me just starting to flex my cartooning muscles. It was intended for a, a local regional audience. It had jokes about Milwaukee and this stuff that I wouldn't expect anybody in San Francisco or New York to get at all. Um, all the money in the world that I had allowed me to print 4,000 copies. And uh, astonishingly, in retrospect, I sold 3,000 of those <laughs> on the east side of Milwaukee. Wow. Like, going around, schlepping them, took them to every head shop, used bookstore, corner drugstore, anybody who would let me put a stack in the counter on consignment. 
and they sold and I'd replace them. So I had these entrepreneurial instincts, unlike probably most cartoonists. And uh, so I lived like a king that summer. Um, 500 of them, my roommate went to a, something called Woodstock. He took those with him. <laughs> and uh, he was supposed to sell them there. But by the time he and his friend, you know, got there, they had to park like uh, probably at least a mile or so from the gates. They carried the box, which was pretty heavy, 500 comics. <laughs> and when they got there, they were so tired and so overwhelmed by the experience, they basically ended up getting stoned or tripping, gave them all away. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got no money, but I know that I, I had a little part of Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And the last 500 were ordered by arguably the first comic shop in America, the San Francisco comic book shop run by a guy named Gary Arlington. And um, he sold out right away. And I thought, oh, my God, 500 people in San Francisco bought this Milwaukee comic. And he uh, he wanted more. And I said, well, you took the last ones. And so I thought, well, now what? I lived like a king all summer. Now I'm broke. I can't afford to reprint. My roommate happened to be out in San Francisco and he said, I'll find you a publisher. And he walked into the print mint, showed him a copy and they said, sure, we'll, we'll reprint it. We're happy to. So suddenly I had a publisher and I was happy because that's <laughs> really what I wanted. To cut a long story short, uh, I felt I was not getting an honest accounting and I couldn't get satisfactory answers from them. I, I, um, uh, got pissed at them. And I said, all right, fuck them. I'm going to do it myself again. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, I had gotten to know the underground cartoonists in Chicago, principally Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson, who were doing uh, Bijou Funnies. And they had the similar experience. And Jay said to me, look, we don't like those guys either. He said, if you're going to publish your own, would you publish ours too? <laughs> and then at that moment, without thinking, without a minute of thinking, I said, sure. <laughs> In fact, I, I said something even dumber. I said, two's as easy as one. Why not? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But what happened was I didn't know how to schlep comics, at least locally. And I had some business instincts. And I also realized something very important, which is I got mistreated by a publisher when I read anything I could get my hands on about comics publishing, the publisher was usually the villain. Mm -hmm. They were always ripping off artists. And I thought, God damn it, if I'm going to publish, even on a small scale, I'm going to use the golden rule. And I'm going to treat Jay and Skip and anybody else the way I wish I had been treated. And so that's how Kitchen Sink Press started. As you were, you know, getting Kitchen Sink up and running, what sort of censorship pressures did you have to deal with? I mean, was there much of a concern in the early days with things like obscenity laws uh, and, and things like that? Or had that not re were you able to fly under the radar, more or less? Well, you know, we probably should have been war more worried than we were. Mm -hmm. Um. The honest answer is, no, we didn't worry about it. And even though 
Crum and S. Clay Wilson and some of the guys, you know, were really doing some pretty wild stuff. Enough of the undergrounds were pretty tame, and we just thought, well, if it's not your cup of tea, you won't pick it up. We never mm-hmm. thought about a cop picking it up or right. an enraged uh, mother or something. Mm-hmm. The first censorship issues we had in our shop in Milwaukee was the local radical feminists who came in and they had stickers and they would just walk in and they would put stickers that would say, this offends women. (laughs) And uh, that, I guess, you know, in retrospect, doesn't surprise me because I have no doubt some of them were offensive to many women. And so it bothered me enough that I went to the, uh, the, uh, underground paper in Milwaukee, one of them was called Kaleidoscope, and it had just been taken over by this women's collective. Mm -hmm. So I naively went there to talk to them. And I thought, you know, I'm sure they're reasonable. They're on the left side of the fence. So am I. I'm a a hippie, aren't they? So I went over there and it was a summer day, I will never forget. And they were in a building that was three-story brick building and of course there was no air conditioning who could afford it and they said let's go up uh, where it's cooler on the roof so i followed them up there and brought chairs and they set a chair right by the edge and surrounded me and started talking (laughs) and i didn't really ever probably think they're going to push me off the edge but it was (laughs) disconcerting (laughs) they have four very angry women uh and me with three stories of a <laughs> fall behind me. And basically I listened to them because they had some legitimate arguments and, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I at one point lamely said, well, you know, some of the guys do that. I don't personally draw comics that would offend you. And one of them said, yes, you do. All of your women have large breasts. And the woman who said that, had large breasts and my cartoonist part of my brain wanted to say, I draw what I see. But the smart part of my brain said, you know, that's a good point. And I'm going to have to draw women more naturally. Thank you for pointing that out. And finally they let me go and I breathed a sigh of relief. And I thought, okay, don't walk into the lion's den again, but I understood. Mm -hmm. Sure. I never really had another direct encounter for a long time. In 73, there was a big case, uh, or no, was it 74? Zap number four was busted in New York. Mm -hmm. That was an issue where Crumb did a story about incest, where he didn't condemn it. In fact, it was called Joe Blow, and the subtitle was The Family That Lays Together Stays Together. And it was pretty outrageous, as only Crumb can do. And uh, so it was busted, and uh, we thought, oh, my God, you know, now the sky's going to fall in. And we watched the trial proceed. And the funny thing was, uh, I'll never forget this, the presiding judge, you can look this up, Judge Tyler. And uh, when the defense was calling witnesses, one of them was – I forget his name, but he was the editor at Harvey Comics. And so when he came up, the attorney said, and uh, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an editor at Harvey Comics, where we do children's comics like Little Lada, 
and uh, you know, little dot and mm-hmm. Richie Rich and whatnot. And Judge Tyler interrupted and he said, Children's comics, I beg your pardon, I read those regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, uh Zap was found obscene. Mm-hmm. And we <sighs> thought, well, that's it, that's the end of the industry. And then what happened was everybody ignored it, including even the shops in New York. The cops never enforced it. So it was like, well, gosh, yes, there are censorship laws and you can even get convicted, but then nothing happens. But then the big one was in 1986, I think, the Friendly Franks case in Lansing, Illinois. And that changed everything. Let's talk about 1986. So it was a, a huge year for comics. I mean, that was when Watchmen and Dark Knight and Mouse all hit the stands. Like, you know, this big sea change. You had the the direct market um, had, you know, now we had a network of comic stores around the country um, that were strictly selling comics. Um, um, and then that was also the year that, that Michael Correa, uh, the manager of a comic shop, called Friendly Franks, uh, was arrested on charges of distributing obscenity. Um, and a couple of the comics that were mentioned in the complaint um, were Omaha the Cat Dancer and Bizarre Sex, which were kitchen sink uh, publications. Uh, and and you took a very, very active interest in this case. Yeah, you know, I was I was personally offended, I think. When the, the, the owner, Frank Mangiorecino, was the owner of the small chain and uh, Mike Korea's boss, and he called me, and when he told me about it, uh, I thought, you know, that's not right. I mean, first of all, uh, Omaha was a very literate comic. It was erotic. It had some explicit sex, but it was a literate comic. Yeah. It was written by a woman. Most of the readers, so far as we could tell, were women. It wasn't what you'd call classic pornography, and I thought, it's just wrong that that got busted. And so some of the other things that got busted were like heavy metal. Mm-hmm. I think even Elf Quest they grabbed uh, because it had a birth scene in it, you know? Oh, yeah. And so uh, so uh, I, I, I was very upset with that. But Frank said, no, no, don't worry. He said, I hired a good attorney. She's going to take care of it. But I just wanted to let you know. So I said, all right, keep me posted. Well, the attorney he hired... had no uh, experience in First Amendment issues. And she blew it on a couple of levels. And basically, Mike was found guilty. And he was facing a several thousand dollar fine and some potential jail time. And then I got really upset because I thought, this isn't right. Something needs to be done. And so I happened to have been in a Minneapolis, when I got that news, it was a small convention, and I think Sergio Aragones was a guest, and I told him, and he was upset, and I said, I'm going to do a portfolio and raise some money to hire a really first-rate attorney. Would you contribute to it? And he said, by all means, and he did a wonderful drawing for it. And I thought, well, that was easy, so then I called Will Eisner and Crum and Richard Corbin and of course, Reed Waller, who did Omaha, and mm-hmm. I did one. And we ended up with a, a dozen artists 
I convinced my printer that it was for a good cause. He should do it at cost with no markup. I convinced the distributors at that time. In those days, there were more than Diamond. We actually had <laughs> eight or 10 distributors, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And most of them agreed to also carry it in their catalog without a markup. And so <clears throat> it sold out. And uh, I think we had a signed edition for 50 bucks and an unsigned one for 20. Point is, raised a lot of money. I found a first-rate First Amendment attorney, and he appealed the case and overturned it. And at that point, besides celebrating, there were still some, I forget how many thousands of dollars left in the checking or the, the account that I'd set up. And I thought, well, I can either donate this to another good cause or maybe this kind of bust might happen again and there should be a fun handy. So I thought I'm going to opt for the latter choice, called it the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And uh, once that was done and this case got pressed, we found out that there were cases like this happening. Nobody heard about it because usually at the local level, it was shut down right away. If you owned a shop, say in, you know, Podunk, and a cop walked in and told you, take those comics off your shelf, or I'm going to bust you, probably you'd go, all right, I don't want any trouble. I'll remove them. And so we would find out later that happened. Nobody ever came to the defense before. So suddenly there was an umbrella organization that covered the entire country. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I, some people who had helped early on with fundraising and such, I approached them to be on the board. We filed to be a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. And, you know, it just continued to grow since then. And now there's a full-time staff of four in Portland. And I think it bears saying, too, for our listeners um, who are thinking, why should I care <laughs> about what what the CBLDF does. Um, I don't read risky or porno comics or whatever, um, <laughs> but a few titles that have, are on the banned and challenged comics list are, like we said, Mouse, um, Batman, The Killing Joke. There's an amazing Spider-Man issue. Uh, <laughs> Sandman, Watchmen. Yeah. Um, there's and, a lot of things that are saga, yeah, a lot of yeah. things that are just great. Uh, again, for specific age groups and they're labeled for those age groups. And yeah, exactly. It's what we call the old slippery slope of where mm -hmm. do you draw the line? Right. If you don't defend some of the worst, then, you know, that line gets closer and closer to what you like. Mm -hmm. And um, this is why I've seen obscenity cases are very difficult to defend because you might look at something at face value and you go, Yuck, I don't want to see that. I don't want my children to see it. I don't want anybody to see it. But I have to defend it because it's a First Amendment issue. And one degree beyond that, two degrees, five degrees, where, how do you define? It's like the Supreme Court in 1973 
found it impossible to define, how do you ever define it? Because what offends one person might be another's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we do draw lines, things like child pornography is pretty universally condemned. You know, you can find some areas, but in general, it's very tough to draw that line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and especially where, you know, with the community standards definition of obscenity, like that's a, a moving target. That's a shifting standard. So, you know, what is against community standards exactly now might not be in 20 years or vice versa. Um, so, yeah, having a, a little bit of stable ground to stand on um, is a valuable thing. Right. And what if you lived in a very conservative community where the standards were different than your personal ones, and you'd be subject to the standards of that community. Mm -hmm. I mean, to go back for a moment to the Friendly Franks case, an aspect I didn't mention was when the publicity, local newspaper covered that initial bust, Frank sent me a copy of it. And I was appalled to read that one of the officers who made the bust was quoted by a reporter as saying, that he was stun- astonished by how much satanic material was in that comic shop, oh. including a Wonder Woman poster that was satanic. And right away I realized, okay, this guy's a religious nut, and he's imposing his whatever satanic means to him right. to this material. Yeah. And so we can't let police officers, you know, or judges or anybody with a religious bias again impose it this is all part of it it's it's so layered yeah so uh, i mean i think this brings us to the the million dollar question here um what can folks who are listening to this who are fans of the comics medium and want to ensure first amendment protection for it how can they uh help to do that if you aren't already a member of the CBLDF, join. It doesn't cost that much, and it gives you certain privileges. Uh, you can do it online. You can go to any major comic convention. There's usually a booth set up, and where there's a booth, you'll see where artists and publishers have donated things and a lot of signed books and so on that are available and often at a nice discount. There's a lot of benefits besides the good feeling of knowing you're fighting a good fight. One Final question, just to bring this all back around to the comics code. Um, This is the last thing I wanted to touch on. So in 2011, um, the comics code authority was officially rendered defunct uh, (laughs) when DC comics and Archie comics, I guess, basically stopped pretending that they were actually submitting comics to it. Um, And by the end of 2011, uh, the infamous CCA seal uh, wound up as the intellectual property of the CBLDF. (laughs) So I think that's basically the happiest ending I can imagine uh, for that whole thing. And how did that go down? Well, it comes under the life's little ironies category, right? (laughs) Um, I think at that point, you know, whoever was the final, you know, person turning the lights off at the, uh, at, at the uh, comic code authority, they just realized, um, it was meaningless. And if the CBLDF could put it on a T-shirt and sell it for fans who were like like us, nostalgic about the days when that symbol was meaningful, if not fearful, mm-hmm. or hateful, 
Um, I think they just realized well, why the heck not. Uh, there, there wasn't a big discussion about it. I think it was offered, and the fund gladly said sure because it it became at this point kind of a camp thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but who could have predicted that it would have come full circle like that? <laughs> it's so grateful. Yeah. I mean, maybe Doctor Wortham is turning in his grave. But- <laughs> <laughs> Let's One can so. hope. One yeah. can hope. Well. Uh, Dennis Kitchen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, I, I have been looking forward to this conversation uh, since you accepted the invitation. Um, I've been such a tremendous fan of your your work and everything that you have helped to bring to light for the last 50 years. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it's kind of you to say I had fun. Um, you almost inspired me to go out and buy a Spider-Man comic. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we oh. normally recommend non-Marvel comics at the end of our uh, you know, runs, um, especially those that are a little more well, actually, risque. Yeah. You, you might mention there's a compendium of this out, the best of comics book that Dark Horse published a few years ago. For anyone who's curious about that Stanley experiment. There we go. Thank you, guys. Thank Thanks you so much. One more plug, uh, go to cbldf.org to become a member today. Protect the First Amendment rights of comics retailers, creators, publishers, librarians, and readers. Um, And then once and only once you have done that, uh, subscribe to our Patreon uh, for the fantastic price of four bucks a month at patreon.com slash marvelbythemonth. You can get exclusive content like an extended version of this very episode. Uh, review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you use to listen to us. And if you'd like some free stuff in the mail, send us a screenshot of your five-star review to marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at marvelbythemonth. And marvelbythemonth.com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop. Rob just unveiled uh, mm. our latest uh, T-shirt, which has infinite broad appeal i believe yeah i mean everybody who loves the supporting cast of submariner is gonna want to have orca and dorcas and dorma and krang on their shirt just those words really (laughs) big broad appeal yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. if you like explaining your shirt to people this is the shirt (laughs) for you let us help you with that yeah so yes uh please Hit up uh, marvelbythemonth.com to get a look at that as well as uh, the rest of our merch. And that, man, that's it for now. Uh, So my name is Brian Stratton. I'm Rob Milne. I'm Jamie Wenger. And we'll see you next week for next month. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read banned comics. (laughs) 